I was at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, sitting in Beijing National Stadium. Remember this building? It looks like a giant metal bird's nest. It holds 80,000 people, or one giant robot vulture. The arena was budgeted at half a billion dollars, but that was deemed too much. So they cut the price down to 300 million. Then, due to cost overruns, it wound up costing half a billion dollars. It was built to last a hundred years, but since the Olympics, it's only been used a handful of times. A winter carnival, a few pop concerts. It can withstand an 8.0 earthquake, but not massive public disinterest. Not far away is the Aquatic Center, where Michael Phelps won eight gold medals in swimming. This building looks like a huge kitchen sponge that changes colors. It's like something out of a cartoon. SpongeBob eats a tainted Krabby Patty and falls changing color every few seconds. It symbolizes everything I love about the Olympics. It's big and colorful and pointless and goofy. Every two years, cities across the world fight for the honor of hosting an event that will bankrupt them. Not only did the Olympics lose money, they leave town stuck with expensive facilities nobody uses, like a velodrome. If you don't know what a velodrome is, it proves my point. The locals don't want the games. I lived in Los Angeles during the 1984 Olympics and the entire city cleared out. It was the perfect LA. Lots of palm trees, no people. A spokesman for Disneyland said the park was so empty you could shoot deer in the parking lot. It's a weird metaphor from the studio that made Bambi. Everyone left Los Angeles but me. So I bought the cheapest Olympic ticket I could find, a boxing match between Egypt and Cameroon. These are not big boxing countries, and the two fighters had clearly never seen a fight before. One guy huddled in the corner trying not to get hurt. The other guy rocked from side to side in giant swaying arcs. I've never been in a fight in my life, but I had a sense I could whip both these guys at the same time. went to the London Olympics in 2012, and that bustling city hasn't been so empty since the Blitz. Still, I couldn't get tickets to the opening ceremony, the one that featured those lovable geezers Paul McCartney, Eric Idle, and Queen Elizabeth. So I watched the ceremony in a hotel suite surrounded by former Olympic athletes. They couldn't get tickets either, because if you don't win a medal, you don't get squat. And every year, 6,000 Olympic competitors go home empty-handed. On TV, I watched Sebastian Coe open the games. Coe won four Olympic medals for running real far, real fast. For that, he was elected to Parliament and made a Lord. Tonight, he was addressing a TV audience of 3.5 billion, half the people on Earth. Sitting next to me in that dingy hotel room was the runner Sebastian Coe beat by four seconds. He's now a gym teacher in Connecticut. Even if you win, that's no guarantee of anything. Sure, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, and Joe Frazier went from the Olympics to long, lucrative careers beating each other up. Mary Lou Retton morphed from Olympic gymnast to a beloved Peter Pan on stage. General George S. Patton competed in the 1912 Olympics in pistol shooting. He came in 21st. Patton would go on to become one of the least loved Peter Pans in history. What about Primo's Cosmos? No, he's not the bad guy in the Transformers movies, but that's an excellent guess. 
Primos Cosmos is the guy I saw that night in Beijing Bird's Nest Stadium. He won Slovenia's first medal in the hammer throw. He spent his whole life ignoring his studies, sacrificing his personal life to become the world's greatest hammer thrower. Now that he won the gold medal, what could he do? Work at Home Depot, throwing hammers from the stock room to the front of the store? Why had I even seen the hammer throw? Because the tickets were 10 bucks. It costs a fortune to see pairs figure skating at the Winter Olympics, but it's easy to get into pairs figure skating rehearsal. You see the same skaters, the same routines, but many numbers end with the couple screaming at each other on the ice in front of everyone. And that's what I go to the Olympics for. You see, I'm not really a sports fan. As a result, I go to the events no one else is interested in. Trampoline, race walking, roller hockey. I'm only sad I missed these actual Olympic sports that were tried out and retired. Hot air ballooning, club swinging, live pigeon shooting. Everyone remembers Jesse Owens' victories at the 1936 Olympics, but no one remembers Charles Downing Lay, who also won the gold medal for America that year in town planning. Town planning used to be an Olympic event. No matter how obscure the sport, you get caught up in it. Within 10 minutes, you consider yourself an expert. Nice step rhythm, I heckled the javelin thrower. You throw like women's javelin world record holder Barbora Sportakova. My wife jostled me. Maybe you shouldn't antagonize the man with the pointy stick and the deadly aim. Yes, I embody another fundamental aspect of the Olympics. Bad sportsmanship. A Russian athlete once told me, I only want English or American referees. They're the only honest judges. Even better is a Russian referee because they cheat. But for me... Politics ruins every Olympics, just like it ruins every Thanksgiving dinner in my family. Still, the games take me all over the world, and they're generally a reflection of the city hosting them. The 1984 LA Olympics were a show-busy affair. They opened with a speech by movie star-turned-president Ronald Reagan. They closed with the arrival of a fake UFO dubbed the Flying Taco. At the other end of the spectrum was Pyeongchang, South Korea, the tiny onion-growing town that hosted the Winter Games. I asked the local taxi driver to take me to the Olympic Park. He gave me a blank stare. I said, it's the Olympics. It's the only thing in this town. Blank stare. I showed him a brochure for the Olympics. It had a map. Olympic Park was written in Korean. Still, none of this got through to him. I exploded. It's two miles away. It's that big complex of sports arenas rising from the onion fields. It has a blimp floating over it. I'm pointing right at it. Follow my finger. I wound up walking to the Olympics. It was two miles in freezing weather and high winds. When I arrived, I found out many of my events had been canceled due to freezing weather and high winds. They promised me a full refund. It's been three years and I'm still waiting. That night, after the games I didn't see, I had to get home. I found another cabbie and gave him a card with the name and address of my hotel. He looked it over, seemed to consider it a gift, and pocketed it. And then the blank stare returned. It's at the beach, I said. I mime ocean waves, surfing, swimming, a shark. 
He seemed to enjoy my little show, which was nice, but I was not getting through to him. It's at the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. How can you not know where it is? It is literally, literally the biggest thing on earth. Still, Pyeongchang was more prepared than Athens. They were hosting the 2004 Olympics, and I was in town a few months before. I visited the site of their Olympic Park and saw nothing. Just acres and acres of mud. There were actually more facilities at the ruins of the original Greek Olympics, built 2,700 years before. The 2004 Athens Olympics were budgeted at 5 billion, cost 11 billion, and may be the reason that Greece is still in debt today. The best run games I ever attended were the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics. If you remember them at all, it was for the negative coverage they got in the American media. Sochi was a tropical resort. All the snow was melting, and the town was overrun with stray dogs. What a load of borscht! So she was plenty cold, much cooler than the 70 degree weather at Vancouver's Winter Olympics. And I only saw two stray dogs in the weeks I spent there. Security seemed tight. There were metal detectors everywhere, but not one of them was plugged in. It was a new Russia. The people were cheerful, helpful, and friendly. Clearly, the order had been given to be nice to tourists, because the moment the Olympics ended, the Russians went right back to being surly, sad, and drunk. I attended the opening ceremony, sitting directly across the arena from Vladimir Putin. My tickets were $1,800. I assume he got some discount. As the magnificent spectacle unfurled, I watched Putin. What was he thinking? Was he proud? Relieved? Bored? It turns out what he was thinking was... In three weeks, I am invading the Ukraine. If you're intrigued by the Olympics, but don't want to bother with all those stupid sports, I recommend going to the World's Fair. They're like the Olympics on steroids. No, wait. The Olympics are the Olympics on steroids. If you're like most people, you're probably saying, the World's Fair? Is that still a thing? Maybe you remember the great Expo 67 in Montreal, or the not-so-great Expo 74 in Spokane, Washington, or the just-awful 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, they keep holding them every year or two whether you know it or not. World Expos are like those celebrities who you think died decades ago, and then you see their obituary on TV and say, I didn't know that guy was alive, when in fact, He's not alive, which is why you're seeing his obituary. Example, Mac Davis. There's a World Expo every year or two, and they alternate between big cities like Milan and Shanghai, and places you never heard of, like Zaragoza, Spain, and Yosu, South Korea. I go to every one. They're all great, and they're all exactly the same. Countries from around the world build pavilions celebrating a hopeful future that will never, ever come. There's generally a theme, and it's generally unsexy. There was Expo 2008, Water and Sustainable Development. Expo 85, Dwellings and Surroundings, colon, Science and Technology for Man at Home. The following year gave us Transportation and Technology, colon, World in Motion, World in Touch. These themes are clearly decided by committee and then run through three or four language translation programs. The smart countries just ignore the theme and do whatever they feel like. One year, the Japanese pavilion featured an ancient Roman senate as recreated with bronze sculptures of dogs. Why? Who cares? It was awesome! 
The Shanghai World Expo theme was Better City, Better Life. Spain, for no good reason, sent a two-story tall robot baby. Of course, everything was big in Shanghai. It was the largest, most expensive expo ever at $58 billion. My wife spent a solid five days from opening to closing time hitting as many attractions as we could. We thought we'd seen it all, but as we left on our final day, we noticed we had missed two-thirds of the park. Shanghai is a major financial center today, but it's never quite shaken its past as a rough-and-tumble fishing village. As I waited on long, long lines at their expo, I saw Shanghainese spitting, cutting in front of me, and beating the crap out of their kids. Trying to get food from a concession stand became what Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all. Every night I'd come home literally bruised from the shoving and jostling. Every morning I'd tell my wife, I can't face another day of this. I much preferred the 2017 Expo in Kazakhstan. There was nobody there. Seriously, it was like they built a world-class World Expo and then forgot to tell the world. We walked from one glorious pavilion to the other and never saw another living soul. You probably only know about Kazakhstan from the Borat movies, where he depicts it as a poor, backwards Eastern European country. These are funny films, but it's kind of a comedy hate crime. For starters, Kazakhstan is in Central Asia, and it's a pretty wealthy country thanks to its vast petroleum deposits. In fact, its whole capital city, Astana, looks like a world's fair, with the skyline of futuristic buildings right out of the Jetsons. Google it. You're not gonna Google it. What Am I Doing Here was written and performed by Mike Reese and produced by Josh Perillo, featuring Denise Reese as herself. Additional voices by Trevor Morris, Mike's Funny Doorman.